Hey, good morning, FCF. This is the second message in a series we're calling The New You 2.0. Started last week, and what I said is that it's based on a portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 49, where it says that just as we wear the image of the first Adam, the physical Adam, we that have trusted in Christ, that have been reconciled to God, we are destined to wear the image of the second Adam, Jesus, the man from heaven, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we are destined to wear that image forever, but it starts in this life. We connected that with this notion of New Year's resolutions because in New Year's resolution, we, we show that we can envision a better version of ourselves. We can desire it. We can even write down some items, but where it breaks down, tends to break down, is the follow-through. This entire series is dedicated to changing that dynamic. I believe the reason we lack the power to put on the new 2.0 version of ourselves, the Christ-like version that God intends, it has to do with our view. It has to do with our spiritual perception. And so this entire series is about gaining a different viewpoint, and that viewpoint becomes the power for putting on, actually putting on the 2.0 version of ourselves, the Christ-like version. We're talking real transformation from the inside out. So. With that in mind, let me ask you a question to introduce today's message because we're going to introduce a view today. Last week we looked at a new view of circumstances. A new view of circumstances is required if we're going to put on the 2.0 version of ourselves. Today we want to look at something different, a new view of God. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't need a new view of God. Oh, okay, that, that may well be. Thank God for that if that's true. But let's just, let's just at least hear this message out. So, if I were to ask you, what is your prevailing view of God? Your prevailing view of God. And by prevailing, I mean the view that you hold inside that you may know or may not know about, that you may be clear about or you may not be clear about. It's the view that you hold on a subjective as well as an objective level. It's an emotional view as well as a mental view. What is your prevailing view of God? Because, and here's why this is an important question to answer, whatever your prevailing view of God is, whatever my prevailing view of God is, this is what I can tell you absolutely. My, your, our prevailing view of God will determine whether we are paralyzed, okay, paralyzed in putting on this 2.0 version of ourselves that God intends, or whether we are mobilized and energized to put on that new 2.0 version of ourselves. As we sit here today, as I stand here today, each and every one of us are either spiritually speaking paralyzed because of our prevailing view of God, or we are mobilized and energized because of our prevailing view of God. Now, of course, you can tell where I'm going with this. The, the question is, is, is our prevailing view of God an accurate view? Now, I don't want to spend too much time with this, but, but our, our prevailing view of God, it, it can come from so many different sources. It's not just what we read in the Bible. It's not just what we get taught in church. It's based on our experiences in life. It's based on the, the subjective emphasis of our culture that we live in at the historical period. There's lots of things. We can't go into that now. But what I want to do is I want to take you back now to that individual that we met last week because we're going to, we're going to spend time with this guy every single week. He has no name, but by the end of this series, we'll all feel like we know him very well. So I'm going to take you back to John's Gospel, chapter 5, and I want to start reading in verse 1. 
It says, After that there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is at Jerusalem by the slaughterhouse a pool called in the Hebrew tongue Bethsaida, having five porches, in which lay a great number of sick, uh, sick folk of the blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there who had been diseased 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that uh, for a long time now he had been diseased, he said to him, Do you want to be made whole? We'll deal with that next week. Uh, that's a powerful question. Do you want to be made whole? Jesus asked. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But in the meantime, when I'm about to walk, oh, excuse me, when I'm about to come, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath day. That's verses 1 through 8 of John's Gospel, chapter 5. Let me read verse 14. After that, Jesus found the man in the temple. Now the man is walking. He's in the temple after 38 years of being paralyzed. After that, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, Behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. So here we have the scene, and here we have the man. We, we never get his name, but we know that he has been uh, at this place where so many ill people gathered, they, they would receive offerings from the people there. They were, this is how they survived, essentially. And this man had been there for 38 years. We don't know his age, but 38 years of his life, he had been in this paralyzed condition, condition and he's waiting, apparently, for the occasional time when an angel miraculously brings healing to those that can get down to the water when it's being stirred up. So, what I want to do is start us with looking at what was likely, likely to be this man's view of God based on the prevailing culture and beliefs of his day and how this would have had a paralyzing effect on him. Now, obviously he was paralyzed physically, but I want to suggest to you that he was probably paralyzed mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, relationally, and in a number of other ways because of the likely prevailing view of God that he held to. So we want to look at a paralyzing, untrue view of God first, because I, I, I strongly believe before this man encountered Jesus, he probably had a paralyzing, untrue, emphasis on the untrue, view of God. It, it doesn't have to be true to paralyze me or to paralyze you. It just has to be the prevailing view of God that we hold to knowingly or unknowingly, let me add that. So, here's what I suggest was his likely view of God before encountering God in Jesus. He's been there 38 years, miserable, helpless, hopeless. I want to suggest to you he likely thought that God viewed him as just a face in the crowd. 
that he was nothing more than a face in the crowd. You know, today we have about seven and a half billion people. Back in that biblical time, there was probably uh, maybe a half a billion people alive. They wouldn't have known that because they had geographical limitations. Nevertheless, this man would have known, though, he was one of many, that there were hundreds of thousands at least. Probably they were even aware that there were millions of people on earth. But it's likely that as he laid there for 38 years helpless, God not doing anything for him that he could understand or desire, that he probably just started feeling like, I'm just a face in the crowd. And likelihood is, is that all of us at times have felt like, I'm just a face. I'm just one of seven and a half billion people. That's how God views me. Now, that's an untrue view of God. It's a paralyzing view of God, paralyzing to our development, our, our initial approach to God. If you feel that God just sees you as a face in the crowd, you're going to be paralyzed in your approach to Him. You're likewise going to be paralyzed in your walk with Him, if that's how deep inside you see that you're, you're just one of seven billion, nothing more than that. Secondly, he might have thought, I'm insignificant to Him. In that, in that first instance, um, you know, the, the man was laying there. He was just one of many sick people. He had been there for 38 years. He probably thought to himself, if God found me significant, surely he could have come to my aid. He could have done something by now. So all things considered, I probably just don't matter much to him. In those days, the Pharisees, who were the, the theological leader, leaders in thought, they kind of had impressed the people with a view of God, a picture of God, that God was very impressed with people that were like the Pharisees, that were uh, constant students of the Old Testament, who were ceremoniously scrupulous about keeping the rituals and laws. But if you were just an average everyday Joe, well then God didn't really have much concern for you, that you're just insignificant for Him. Jeremiah 2, th this man might have felt this way. Jeremiah 2, 5 says, Thus says the Lord, they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. This man very possibly could have viewed that God looked at him as just worthless. Some of us, some of us, even some of us that know that Christ created us, loved us so much that he sacrificially died for us, we still struggle with worthlessness. We still struggle with self-esteem issues. You will never, ever solve your self-esteem issue if you are still trying to prove yourself to yourself or prove your worth by something you do or something you achieve or some group you belong to. You will never, you will be tormented to the end of your days in this life, never knowing your worth until you, until I settle it, that my worth comes from the fact that the eternal God, Christ, created me, created me for Himself in His image and proved His love beyond a shadow of a doubt by sacrificially dying for me. And that's where I find my worth, not from anything I do, not from what other people think of me, not from what group I belong to or what I achieve or, or anything else in life. Until I settle the score, I will be tormented, no matter what God wants to do to alleviate my torment. But this man might have felt worthless. So it's a paralyzing view of God if I feel that I'm just a face in the crowd. It paralyzes my approach toward God. It paralyzes my walk with God. If I feel that I'm insignificant to Him, that I really don't matter to Him much, it paralyzes me. I won't be developing. The 2.0 version of me will never develop. Thirdly, I think this man might have thought, 
he doesn't care about me because if he cared about me, I wouldn't have been laying here 38 years of my life just languishing away. I mean, isn't he aware of the suffering and, and the torment as I view other people going through life and they have so much and I have nothing other than the existence itself. Listen to this verse from Psalm 142.4, and I think that this is a possible way this man may have felt. He says, I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. That's Psalm 142.4. I think the man might have thought, all things considered, God just doesn't care much about people like me. He might care for the Pharisees. You know, they're, they're special. They're, they do things that please him. They're, they're ceremonially special. Or, or he might care about special people like Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, you know, or Micah or somebody like that. But, but guys like me, I'm just sitting here, a paralyzed individual, 38 years. I'm probably not that important, all things considered to God. And if you and I if you and I, knowingly or unknowingly, harbor any of these thoughts, I'm going to repeat them again because they're just this important. If we harbor thoughts like, I'm just a face in the crowd, it's going to paralyze your spiritual progress. If I'm harboring inside a, a thought like, I'm really pretty insignificant to Him, I don't matter much to Him, or if I harbor a thought inside, He doesn't really care about me. My my life proves that he doesn't care about me. This is what we do sometimes. We interpret God's care, God's concern, God's feelings about us based on our circumstances, which is not a trustworthy thing to do. But if we do it, it will paralyze us. We will not have any initiative to approach God, much less to walk with him in, in true trust. And so we're paralyzed as far as the development that God intends for us. One last view, and this one I want to spend a little time digging in on. The man probably thought this one because it was so prevalent in his day. He probably thought that God is likely displeased with me. Uh, the Jews in those days, it, it, John, in John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a blind man and he heals the blind man. And, and, and when he encounters him, his own disciples say to him, Lord, who sinned that this man would be born blind, the man or his parents? They, they connected blindness with some direct punishment from God for sin. And Jesus said, no, nobody is sin, but, but this, this man's so that the works of God, the goodness of God's heart can be revealed. So they held to a kind of a karmic-like belief, which was a terrible distortion of God's word, that if bad things were happening to you circumstantially, such as this man, if you were paralyzed for 38 years, you probably had it coming. It's probably because you have some secret sin. If you read the book of Job, uh, Job goes through such a terrible time in the first two chapters of the book, even though he was an altogether righteous man, literally God's favorite on the planet. But then Job's friends come in, torture him for nearly all of the rest of the book, insinuating again and again, you must have secret sin because these terrible things wouldn't happen to you unless you had secret sin. And this man likely felt like on some level, I must be displeasing to God because if I were pleasing to God, I wouldn't be lying here begging. I'd be walking. I'd be whole. I wouldn't be in this condition. So he had a paralyzing, untrue view of God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this because here, here's what I've found through the years. Even for those 
that have found God as He truly is in Christ and have come to trust Him and become His follower, it is not unusual to find lurking around in our soul somewhere this feeling, God must be displeased with me. He, he's probably disappointed. He's probably unhappy with me. I, I just haven't fulfilled my potential, whatever it may be. And this just keeps swirling around inside of us. And I'm going to tell you, it is, it is a paralyzing thought. Listen, it is impossible. It is impossible to grow. It is impossible to develop, to be transformed from the inside out as long as you and I are struggling with fear of God or we're struggling with guilt or we're, we're struggling with, with suspicion about whether uh, He desires our highest well-being and happiness. As, as long as there's some kind of pressure on us, our reflex is to try to do whatever we have to do to get God to be pleased with us. In other words, we want to appease Him. The Pharisees in, in, in this portion of Scripture, were uh, their whole life revolved around doing rituals and ceremonies to appease God. Now, when you're just trying to appease God, you're functioning from duress. You cannot grow. We, we use the term today, we call it legalism. It's the same thing. When I am just mindlessly doing things because I think that's what God wants me to do, and I think if I do that, I'll, that'll be pleasing to Him, you cannot grow. I cannot grow like that. I am doing things based on pressure and duress. I am not doing things because... I have come to analyze them in God's light and become convinced on the deepest levels that God's way is the best way. I like it, I admire it, I want it, and now I embrace it from within, freely. I freely choose His way. Listen, all real growth, all real growth that happens, all real transformation, all real movement toward the 2.0 Christ-like version of ourself, it has to start there. As long as I am doing anything from pressure, trying to please God, trying to appease God. I know some of you are saying, wait, 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 Randy, aren't we supposed to try to please God? Yes, but it's different when you're trying to please someone that you know is for you and loves you and you are for them and love them. That is a whole different thing. But when we're trying to appease Him, we're just trying to find out, I think he's displeased with me, and I don't want him displeased with me. I, I, I want his blessing. I don't want him to be, you know, in, in a place where he would curse me or punish me. Some of us, even that are followers of Christ for a long time, we have looming around inside of us these feelings that we're a disappointment to God, that he's, he's maybe a little angry at us, he's a little disappointed, he's displeased with us. And that will put us into an appeasement cycle, and you can't grow until... The suspicion of God's character is removed until we know that God is truly altogether good and trustworthy and we are following Him fully because we trust Him entirely and that makes us follow Him freely and we want to follow Him forever until that's actually happening inside. Real growth is, is next to impossible because we're doing what we're doing from the basis of exterior pressure. We're just trying to get God off our back and on our side, if that's all possible. Fear. As long as you and I have fear for God, the wrong kind of unhealthy fear for God, we are paralyzed in our ability to walk with God and to develop and to become the 2.0 Christ-like version that He intends. All right. So we've looked at a paralyzing, untrue view of God. Let's turn the corner. Let's look at a mobilizing true view of God. And, and it's just the, the entire opposite. Now I want to suggest to you that up until this man heard the voice of Jesus, God in Jesus for the first time, I feel confident he probably held to this paralyzing view of God because it was so prominent in his day. 
But after he encountered God in Jesus, after he received the, the truth about God, the healing from God, after he found out God does know me, he does love me, he does care about me, he is for me, everything changed. His view of God changed, and he changed not just physically, in my opinion, he changed likely spiritually as well. Whereas once he was paralyzed physically, I suggest spiritually as well, he was healed, made whole, I think, in both realms. So let's look at it point for point. As opposed to, I'm just a face in the crowd. He knows me intimately. God came to this man of all the other people that were sick there. He came to him. He did not come to anybody else. I addressed this last week, why God doesn't heal everybody now. He's going to heal everybody ultimately that is reconciled to him for all eternity. But in this life, it is not his program to heal everybody now. But this man found out that, that God always knew him intimately. Now, he was never a face in the crowd. Psalm 139, 1, it says, O oh Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. This man discovered God knew him intimately. He, he was not just a face in the crowd. He was known to God. The second thing he found was that far from being insignificant to God, God valued him intrinsically. And what I mean by intrinsically is this, is that God placed value on him because he was made by Christ and for Christ, made in the very image of God. We, we are the height of God's creation. Listen to this verse. This is a powerful verse from Psalm 8. It says, What are human beings that you think of them mere mortals, that you care for them, yet you made them inferior only to yourself. You crowned them with glory and honor. You appointed them rulers over everything you made. You placed them over all creation. Listen, every human being is valuable to God. Every human being is intrinsically valued. The, the value of a living thing is based on its capacity to experience life. Let me explain to you what I'm trying to say. An insect is alive, but it does not have uh, the faculties to experience life on a sophisticated level like a dog or a cat. But a dog or a cat does not have the faculties to experience life on a sophisticated level like a human. We are image bearers. Christ made us for himself in his image. We have the capacity, every human being has the capacity to experience life on the level that God himself does. This means we are intrinsically valued. And I just want to say what I've been saying for the past couple weeks. Every individual, God starts with the individual. He does not start with the collective. God values the collective because he cares primarily for the individual. You matter individually to God. Every human matters individually. And because we matter first and foremost individually to God, then we uh, matter to God as a collective. We're, our society is trying to reverse this. It's evil. It's from hell. They're trying to say it's the collective that counts. The individual doesn't count. Be very careful because this is being pushed down our throat today. So it mobilizes us. It energizes us when we know that God knows us intimately and that He values me intrinsically. The third problem, in a paralyzing view, the thought that He doesn't care about me, well, this man discovered he does care for me intensely. God 
meets him, speaks to him in the person of Jesus, and he tells the man, he says, I want you to rise, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Something that he had not been able to do for 38 years, Jesus suddenly empowers him to do. He makes him whole. Listen to this verse from Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 29. It says, You can buy two sparrows for only a copper coin, yet not one sparrow falls uh, from its nest without the knowledge of your father. Now, now listen to this part. Aren't you worth much more to God than many sparrows? So don't worry, for your father cares deeply about even the smallest detail of your life. Your father cares deeply, says Jesus, about even the smallest detail of your life. So far from this paralyzing thought that I don't really matter much to God, He cares deeply. There's another portion of Scripture where it says that, that He counts the very hairs on our, on our head. <laughs> and I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, that's not that hard with certain people. It's getting, it's getting easier and easier with me. Painful to, to, to acknowledge. But nevertheless, it shows that God is intimately acquainted with us and as individuals. you, you got to take this in. Listen, every feeling you have ever felt in your life, God felt it with you. Every tear you have ever cried, He experienced it with you. Every dream you've ever dreamt, He knows it. Every fear you've ever felt, every wound you've ever had. Listen, He is the only one in the universe that knows us from the inside out. He is intimately acquainted. He cares intensely. He doesn't just care. He cares intensely for us. When we know and live in light of this view of God, a God that knows me intimately, values me intrinsically, and cares for me intensely, that mobilizes me, that energizes me, that empowers me to continue to partake of the 2.0 development plan that God intends me to enter into in this life. Real changes that start from the inside out. Real convictions change. I start seeing things the way God sees them and feeling about them the way God feels. And I start making decisions based on His mind, His outlook, His view, His wisdom. And that's authentic change as opposed to, I'm just doing things mindlessly because I want to please God. I want to make sure I get His blessing or, or steer clear of His cursing. That's duress-based behavior. That does not affect our true character. Whenever you or I are doing something based on exterior pressure, it cannot authenticate or it cannot bring authentic character development. Authentic character development, I'm going to say it again, it only happens when you and I are free thinking, we see a certain behavior, we see a certain principle, we hear a certain philosophical point of view, and we think it through and we embrace it as our own. It becomes ours. That's the kind of followers God wants. When it says in John 4, 24, that God seeks those that worship Him in spirit and in truth, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about people that really like God, that like the way that He thinks and the way that He feels, and we embrace it from the inside, and that brings, that brings authentic, lasting change, 2.0 version change. And finally, He not only knows me intensely and values me intrinsically and cares for me intensely, He is for me. This is big. He is for me invariably. He's always for me, in other words. It never changes. It never, ever changes. I, I thought about an example of this that we can even latch on to in the human realm. You, you take a doctor, a, a true committed doctor. It doesn't matter what the patient 
is like in their character, in their lifestyle. L listen, a doctor will treat a criminal. A, cr a criminal might have just been, been wounded in a shootout, and when that criminal is brought in there, that doctor will do everything in his or her, pa her power to save that person's life. They are invariably for their patients. Jesus is the ultimate good physician, the, the great physician. Our God ever is for us. This is so important because a lot of times even followers of Jesus feel like God's, like I say, He's disappointed with me or He's angry at me or, or I bet you this is happening to me because He's punishing me or God's angry. I, I hear this kind of thing all the time. And this man's paralysis had nothing to do with God's anger at him, nothing to do with God's disappointment with him, nothing to do with God punishing him. It had nothing to do with that. And Jesus' revelation of the way God really felt about him, it exposes all that. And it becomes a mobilizing, a mobilizing vision of God. Listen, if you've put your trust in Christ in particular and, and you are now walking in union with your Creator, He is so for you regardless of what your circumstances look like. You cannot, you must not, we must not ever interpret God's devotion to us based on our circumstances. Listen to this portion of Scripture that will make that crystal clear to you. In the book of Romans, chapter 8.31, it says, What shall we say? about such wonderful things as these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. I want you to hear that again. It says, does it mean that Christ no longer loves us? And then the list. Let me say, I just want this to sink in because some of you, this is where you get tripped up. Does it mean that Christ no longer loves us if we have trouble, calamity, persecuted, hungry, destitute, or in danger, or even threatened with death? Verse 37, no, no, it does not mean that He's ceased to love us. Despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. So here we have the absolute assurance that He is for me invariably. There's never a time that God is not for me. There's never a time that God is not for you. If you've put your trust in Christ and you are His follower, but unless you and I, now, now this is where this gets real powerful or not, unless you and I maintain this view of God as He really is, the God that knows me intimately, the God that values me intrinsically, the God who cares for me intensely, and the God who is for me invariably, unless I retain that view, then I will, instead of being mobilized and energized, I will once again slip into being paralyzed. I won't have the power to do the things that God has called and equipped me to do and to become who God has called and equipped me to become. It, it's, it's, it's about the view. It's the view is the secret. This whole series is about the view. Last week it was the view of circumstances. This week it's the view of God. Your and my prevailing view of God is either paralyzing us or it's mobilizing us. There is no in-between. Now I want to close with an example from just everyday life, and it's something that um, 
embarrassingly probably more more of us than not have experienced but i just want to create a, a couple neighbors these are imaginary neighbors and so there's these couples that live down the street from one another and uh, they meet in the neighborhood and they, they share some cookout meals together. And the one neighbor, he, he's a big tool guy. You know, he's got one of these stand up rolling chests. You know, he's a big time mechanic and his tools are all perfectly organized and he's got a tool for everything. His wife likewise is one of these organized sorts of people and she's a, a great cook and she's got volumes of cookbooks on everything. The other couple, however, they're a little more spontaneous, let's just say. Disorganized might be another way of saying it. And so they tend to be always borrowing tools, the husband's borrowing tools and the wife's borrowing cookbooks. And it's all fun, it's all good. Well, as time goes on, the one husband loses track of some of the tools that he's borrowed from the neighbor up the street. Likewise, the wife, she she spills some coffee all over some of the cookbooks and oh, she just feels bad about it. And all of a sudden, each time they see the neighbors, they just feel uncomfortable because how are we ever going to face him? The husband's thinking, I've lost this guy's tools and, and he's a tool guy. He keeps everything so orderly. And the wife's thinking, how will I ever face her? I, I've, I've not treated her, her cookbooks well. How, how will I ever get it back to her? So time goes on, and each time they see this neighbor that they weren't so friendly with, they feel uncomfortable, and they, and they try not to make eye contact. And as time goes on, they, they get where they're literally going to the mailbox at like 10 at night just to avoid their neighbor. They feel so uncomfortable around these people they once felt comfortable about. Now they feel guilty. They feel like the neighbors are going to be so disappointed. They, they, they picture this this confrontation coming sooner or later where they're going to have to own up. The husband that I lost, my friend's tools, I was so irresponsible. The wife, I destroyed the, these precious cookbooks. And, and lo and behold, the day comes. It's a sunny summer day and they see the couple. The husband is literally, he's pushing the, the tall stand-up toolbox down the street. The, the other husband, the disorganized one, he's in panic. He's like, I can't believe it. He's going, to, he's going to show me the tools that are missing. He's literally bringing them right to the door. And then he sees the wife coming. And she's got a whole armful of cookbooks. And the wife goes into panic, the other wife, thinking, oh, my goodness, she's, she's going to see that I've ruined her set. And she's, going to, she's bringing them literally right to me. This is, this is a nightmare. Well, they start thinking, okay, we'll just act like we're not home. We just won't answer the door. But they now they'll see our cars out there. We can't do that. So they, they come up with all these different excuses and finally they don't know what to do but open the door. And when they open the door, the first words out of the husband with the tall toolbox that he's rolled down there is that, hey man, long time no see. Sorry we haven't been able to catch up with you guys since last summer. I wanted to let you be the first one to know that my company bought me a whole new set of tools and man, I just wanted to give this set of tools to you. I, I know you're always... You're always missing a tool, so I, I just wanted to give you this set. And then the wife says, <laughs> My mother bought me a whole set of new cookbooks, things that I had been wanting for so, so long, and I knew how you enjoyed these. So I want you, I want you to, I want you to have these for yourself. The, the couple that had felt so much false guilt, unnecessary guilt, unnecessary discomfort with their neighbor, 
all they could feel now was was amazing overwhelming gratitude and love listen the view the view that they had of their neighbor the view that came from their own guilt the view that came from their own feelings of inadequacy and so forth it had poisoned them it had paralyzed them in their relationship with them and it was not until they got an accurate view that they were mobilized to have comfortable fellowship and friendship with these people that in fact were for them, for them the whole time. There's too many of God's people that walk through life with bad self-esteem, with fear, with, with, with uh, all sorts of uh, views that God is disappointed and angry with them and none of it is true. And it must break the heart of God because he knows how differently he feels. Listen, this man for 38 years, might have felt like he was just a face in the crowd. He might have felt like he was not of any importance to God or that God was angry or disappointed with him. But when Jesus shows up and reveals the way God really is, he finds none of that is true. It's never, ever true. Your God, first of all, he knows you intimately. He values you intrinsically. You have value. You don't have to earn it, prove it. You don't have to compare it to anybody else. You don't have to achieve anything. You were given it when you were created, and it was proven when Jesus sacrificed himself for you. He cares for you intensely. There's never a second that he doesn't care, that he doesn't care for you, and he is always for you. He is invariably for you. And if God is for us, it says no one can be against us. Now some of you are saying, but Randy, it was 38 years this guy's life and I know people, I know people that are faithful to God in their whole life long. Their life is rough. It's hard, Randy. Yes. Remember what I said last week, 2 Peter 3.8, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. But if you and I live 100 years in God's time, that's only 2.4 hours. So even if I have to suffer or you may have to suffer for an hour or 2.4 hours, is not all of eternity going to make that seem as nothing? It's all about, once again, our view. If we have an eternal viewpoint, if we trust the promises of God and set our hearts on things above and not things of this earth like God pleads with us to do, we'll have the power to start seeing the 2.0 version of our self-development. It's a beautiful version. It's a version that loves God and loves people and loves righteousness. It's a version that's faithful and kind and gentle. It's a version that's humble. It knows it's not perfect. It knows it's in process. It's accepting of others that are in process as well. It's a beautiful version. And it's a version that your view and my view, as God wants us to adjust our views, can bring it into fruition. Let's pray, FCF. Father, we ask today, you alone know what our prevailing view of you actually is. And it's highly likely that all of us have some distortions in our prevailing view of you, the living God. You are just so much better than we can hardly imagine. May your kind, gentle spirit be at work in each of us to expand, enlarge, and make accurate our view of you, that instead of being paralyzed, we can be mobilized. And the beautiful 2.0 version that is like unto Jesus would really start to be manifest. May you make this true. We ask it in His holy name. Amen.